is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything, from the arts to commerce to history, and sometimes, well, sometimes some tough stories and some sad stories about loss, eulogies, and then, well, whatever happened to whomever? Whatever happened to that guy, that girl, that actor, that actress, that musician? We love those stories, too, and this is one of them. Like his spectacular passes and jaw-dropping runs, Michael Vick's path of redemption, well, it seemed endless. His life, it was a dance between triumph and trouble on and off the field. This four-time Pro Bowl quarterback was the most thrilling player of a generation, and he became the most reviled. Vick grew up in the roughest part of Newport News, Virginia, also known as Bad News. Michael lived in the Ridley Circle housing projects where gangs, drugs, and pit bulls were just white noise. It was here where he witnessed two local boys become professional athletes, NFL quarterback Aaron Brooks and NBA All-Star Allen Iverson. Vic knew football was his way out. By 2004, at the age of 24, Vic was the NFL's main attraction, Atlanta Falcons owner Arthur Blank rewarded Vic with a record $130 million contract. His dad, he didn't pay any attention to the kids. You know, I did everything. My dad liked to run the streets. You know, my dad liked to do his thing. My dad really went down the wrong path. Growing up with a dad that was on drugs, that was abusive to his mother. It's some things that he probably wanted from that relationship, but just couldn't get. It's like, is this the role that I take in life? Is this the role that I want to take in life? With the uh, first selection in the 2001 NFL Draft, the Atlanta Falcons select Michael Vick, quarterback, Virginia Tech. Oh, baby, the Vick era is here. There's just not that many that can play quarterback the way he could play quarterback. Oh, what a throw by Vic! It just looked like something out of a video game. Out there freestyling, just doing crazy things. This guy is a big-time player. He was just so much faster than anybody else on that field. I'm sure when he was a kid who played tag, he was never it. like having Barry Sanders back there as your quarterback. The most dynamic, athletic quarterback that there ever was. And almost being like a, a superhero, you know, in the town that needed the superhero. You have just seen Michael Jordan of the NFL. This guy had everything. And he risked it all and ended up losing it all because he wanted to have dogs fight against each other. What planet are we on? I have a developing story to tell our viewers about right now. I was actually on the golf course in Atlanta. Yeah. Oh my gosh, look at that thing. Right down the middle, good job, Mike. Well, my best friend called me and told me I knew it was over. You know, the things that I was trying to hide for so many years or thought I could get away with uh, was now coming to light. How could a football star making literally millions of dollars allegedly get involved in something like this? Alec 
allegations of hanging, shooting, body slamming, even electrocuting dogs to death as part of a multi-state underground dog fighting operation. Is a record-breaking NFL superstar, a former number one draft pick, losing a $120 million contract over dog fights? Michael Vick pled guilty to federal dogfighting charges. Approximately six to eight dogs were killed by various methods, including hanging and drowning, and then buried on the property. 66 pit bulls were saved. Michael Vick spent two months in Northern Neck Regional Jail in Richmond, Virginia, and another 16 months in Leavenworth Federal Prison. And then he was released. Well, recently, Michael Vick was invited to speak at Oakwood University Church in Huntsville, Alabama. It is here where Vick tells his story. It's the story of a man who seemed to have everything and then had to start from nothing all over again. Vick's story starts with his childhood and the moment he knew he had a special gift to play football. My upbringing was like, you know, probably like 70% of uh, most, you know, African-American young kids. You know, I grew up in poverty, um, you know, very poverty-stricken area, um, you know, surrounded by a lot of friends, a lot of things going on in the neighborhood that I grew up in, a lot of influences. You know, just the ordinary lifestyle, you know, of a, of a you know, young black kid, um, but, you know, with aspirations. I knew I had a gift, you know, when I was about seven years old. Like, every day my motivation was to go outside and, you know, do something better to try to better myself at the game that I love at such a young age. And uh, I didn't understand my passion, you know, back then when I was when I was that young. I just wanted to have fun doing it. But everybody around me always, you know, told me that I looked different from everybody else. And I think it was because, you know, at a young age, I always practiced. Michael Vick knew that in order to have a life that was going to be different than those who grew up around him, he had to be different. His grandmother offered him some wisdom. I know it was a lot of challenges growing up in the neighborhood that I was in, and, you know, I always felt like, you know, I needed an edge. I needed to have a different visualization of what everybody else in the neighborhood did. I wanted to be different. You know, even though we grew up together, even though we all ran together, had fun together, I wanted to be different, so... You know, my aspirations was to make it to the NFL. And I told my grandmother that at a young age, and I told her I would do anything to get there. And she told me, if you're going to be successful in life, you, got to, you have to find God at some point. And, you know, that always stuck with me. So I'm like, at a young age, I'm like, what can I do to incorporate God into my life? When I don't know, I really know anything about, you know, God or, you know, the Bible or how to interpret it. And I just came to the conclusion, I just put the Bible under my pillow and sleep with it under my pillow until something good happened. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, a life, well, lost and then gained. Michael Vick's story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. We continue with the story of Michael Vick. The rest of the story, as most of you probably have heard about his athletic prowess and how he squandered it all, I'm sure you heard what he did to those dogs. And you hated him for it, because the country hated this guy. And so we had just heard from him at a church, and this was him telling his story to the, the people in that church, and he's going around the country telling his story now to young people, old people, anyone who will listen. Actually, how did you get there, right? How do you get from being the highest paid athlete in NFL history to killing dogs? And what's going on in your head that you'd allow that to happen? We just heard about the advice his grandmother had given him, that if you want to be successful in life, you've got to bring God into your life. Well, let's return to Michael Vick and his story. He was the star quarterback in high school and chose Virginia Tech as the college that would launch him as a star. But like all great QBs, Vick had a backup. A plan A and a plan B. Plan B, I wanted to uh, major in criminology. It was really my backup plan. My plan was plan A. I was to make it, you know, to make it to the NFL. And, you know, I was so determined to do whatever it took to make that happen that I couldn't see my plan B. So my determination was so strong that I wouldn't allow anything to come into my life to negate that. After reaching the highest heights of Plan A, Vic fell to the unimaginable Plan Z, a life in prison. He left behind his wife and his three kids. Well, I think I lost focus. Um, and it's so easy to do. You know, you, you, you feel like you, you know, once you receive all these blessings, you feel like you've arrived. And I, I can honestly say I felt as if there was nothing else that needed to be done, but I, I lost sight of Everything that got me to that point, you know, my beliefs, you know, no more sleeping with the Bible under the pillow, no more saying my prayers at night. My, my grandmother instilled that in my brothers and sisters and my entire family. You know, ask God for something that you, you really want, and you never know when you may get it. And I did that all the way up until I was drafted. Uh, once I got drafted, you know, I started living a different life. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't rigorous. It wasn't, you know, crazy. You know, I, I did everything to try to make sure I, you know, did what I was supposed to do. And at the same time, I had, you know, I was straddling the fence. You know, I always told myself I didn't want to be a product of my environment. I always wanted my environment to be a product of me. But at the same time, I brought some of those same values with me. When I turned 23, 24, and I had some money, and I was able to, you know, just do anything that I wanted to do and, you know, lost focus and, and uh, ended up ending up ended up in prison. Vic responded to the notion that his punishment was due to discrimination. You know, first and foremost, you know, we all got to make decisions. And I think that's what, you know, I had every right to do the right thing and not do the wrong thing. And it, it's so easy to do the wrong thing. Like, I mean, it's, it's the easiest thing to do. You know, it's hard when you got to make a decision based on, um, you know, a positive outcome. And, you know, I had influences around me, but... You know, I think as a grown man at 24 years old and, you know, everything that I received in my life, you know, I was supposed to take a step back and really look at my life as a whole and the people that I affected and the people that, you know, really cared about me. You know, I lot the Atlanta Falcons organization, you know, my mom and dad, um, my co college coaches, you know, anybody who, you know, put time and effort into me and, and la you know, last of all, you know, God. The reason I really was in the position, the reason I'm here today. It's the easiest thing to do, the wrong thing. 
It's just the easiest thing to do. And that's all of us, folks. Vic also said that, well, losing his freedom was tough. Quote, I still think I went to prison because there were certain people I needed to get away from. So it was bigger than dogfighting. It was done to bring awareness to bad. It was done to show that regardless of who you are, you will get punished and you are not above the law. And for me, it was a message of don't lose sight of how you got here. Stay humble. Here's Vic on day one in prison. When I first got into prison, when they first uh, closed the door, it was like um, it was like a dream. And, you know, at that point, I felt like everything in, in life, you know, has to have an expiration date that's not positive. The things that I was doing, I was not going to stop. So that was my expiration date when that door closed. You know, I, I wanted to get out so bad. It was, not, it was out of my control. You know, and the only thing I could do was just kind of, you know, look up and think about what I had done and, you know, kind of ask God to forgive me for what I had done and ask God to help me. And I wanted it all right then. I, I, every time the, the God came to the door and put the key in the door, I was hoping that there was somebody that was coming in to free me. And that was just the first day, you know, and I... <laughs> That was the first day. <laughs> I ended up doing 465 more after that. My goodness. But Prison was his expiration date. Uh, that is, of course, the old Michael Vick. He looked to God, but it didn't take long for him to realize that God wasn't going to unlock his cell and live his life for him. Vick realized his life required personal responsibility and obedience. You know, I always looked at myself as, you know, God's child, you know, I'm praying at night, like saying the hardest prayers that I can pray. But I know it's a mutual respect and a relationship that you have to have with God. You know, I, I didn't want to disrespect that relationship and put a strain on it. So, I, you know, I just told myself I got to be patient. You know, those doors are not going to open when I want them to. And, you know, I have to, you know, put my focus on things that's going to be positive reinforcement when I get out. And, you know, it wasn't until then when, I opened, when they opened the doors and they let me out. You know, it was a new era for me, you know, in my whole walk. Vic discussed overcoming life's obstacles. It was so far-fetched, you know, because all you hear about is the reasons that you can't make it. You know, you know you're small, you know, you, you know the, the NFL doesn't, um, you know, have, they have a limited number of black quarterbacks, you know, which is, you know, something that, you know, is, is, should be overlooked. And something that I wanted to change, and, and, I, and I did. And I was, I was just kind of able to just shift my focus to, you know, doing all the right things, and I did it. But just in the position that I was in, why would you, why would you risk that? Why would you sacrifice that um, for things that, you know, really didn't make no sense or was morally wrong? And, you know, so I'd look at it in that sense. You know, I felt like I should have been more of a mature person and, and was, should have been able to not be a product of my environment, which I didn't want to be. Here are some things that have changed about post-prison Michael Vick and what his plans are post-football. You know, I try to think before I speak. I try to think before I react. Um, I try to weigh all the options, pros and cons, before any decision is made on anything in my life. You know, I think I'm a better teacher, you know, starting with my kids. And, you know, a better leader, you know, in the locker room. And just, you know, with my overall family, I feel like I'm responsible for them. And every decision that they make, I want it to be a reflection of themselves and a reflection of me. So that's a 
great responsibility within itself. Um, and I feel like it's, it's more out there for me. I feel like football was just only a facet of my life, and I was able to accomplish that goal. And I think it's time to kind of put that to rest and try to figure out what my, you know, my next calling is. And I'm just going to let it flow. I'm going to let it come. I'm not going to rush it. I'm not going to ask God to give it all to me at one time. I'm going to just let it happen. And he's letting it happen. And again, this talk was at Oakwood University Church in Huntsville, Alabama. And he's showing up at churches and gatherings around the country. And I think it's almost going to be a ministry of sorts for him, talking to young men about their choices, especially when they get blessings, because that's when you can really just throw everything away. And talking about that environment, and you don't have to be a product of your environment. It's nonsense. You can actually affect the environment. And you've got to teach people this. Or, well, what other options are there for them? Michael Vick's story, by the way, after serving his sentence, he signed with the Philadelphia Eagles in 2009. As a member of the Eagles for five years, he enjoyed the greatest statistical season of his career and was named to the fourth Pro Bowl in 2010. His official retirement from professional football came in 2017, and he was immediately hired by Fox Sports as an analyst for Fox NFL kickoff. Michael Vick's story, by the way, we just love because... Well, if you believe in redemption and you don't have to be a person of faith to believe in it, uh, then you're rooting for people when they, when they make bad decisions. And here on this show, we root for people all the way through, all the way down the line. This is Lee Habib, Michael Vick's story, a story of redemption, of love, and we'll be bringing you more like it here on Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do Share it with friends. And if you have stories like this in your life, and I know you do, you just do. Share them. Don't be ashamed of them. Share them. Share them loud. Own your failures. Own your mistakes. It makes you more human. It allows you to connect with your fellow man. Again, this is Our American Story. Our American Stories, where we bring you stories about everything in life, and where we love to bring you stories from medical professionals who are on the front lines of keeping us all healthy, and who are with us in what are often the most trying moments of our lives. And today we bring you just such a story that we found on the terrific website LifeZet.com. I happen to write for them too. It was written by a critical care physician named Jeremy Topin, and he graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen to Jeremy's story. The patient in front of me is trying to die. Elderly and frail, he's lying in the bed. His ribs outlined under skin that should be smooth. His temples are concave, where they should be flat. Both 
an outward display of internal damage from his lung cancer. More striking than his cachexia are the strained muscles in his neck and his pursed lip breathing. He is working hard for each breath drowning in the air around him from his cancer or pneumonia or more likely both. It's my first night on call as a senior resident in the ICU. It is early in my second year of residency at the University of Chicago where I'm splitting my time between internal medicine and pediatrics. The intensive care unit is outside my comfort zone with its rapid pace and large volume of data to process and the complexities of multiple failing organ systems to manage. I'm both intimidated and inspired by those who seem to recognize patterns, synthesize information, and anticipate problems with ease. I want to be like them. I want to face my fears head on. I've chosen to be here to prove to myself that I can do this, that I'm capable of caring for the sickest of the sick. And now in the middle of the night, without a supporting daytime cast of residents and attendings, I'm anxious for my first test, and it happens to be the man in front of me, struggling to breathe. I want to be here. I want to be a critical care physician. I know what to do. A, B, C, airway, breathing, circulation. He has A in airway. He needs B, help with his breathing. His C, circulation, is fine. And his blood pressure, for the moment, is good. The team, two interns and me, prepare to intubate, placing a tube into his lungs to help him breathe. I've been reading for months about managing patients on a ventilator, the perils, the pitfalls. I review chapters and books written by my attendings who I will report to in the morning. I'm ready. Anesthesia comes and places the tube. I run fluids to prevent low blood pressure. I start medicine to sedate and calm my patient. I call out ventilator settings to help breathe for and give oxygen to my patient. It all goes wrong. His blood pressure drops dangerously low. He's thrashing around in the bed, working even harder than before. Alarms on the ventilator are beeping. His oxygen levels are now critically low. He needs more sedation to calm him, but that will make his already low blood pressure worse. He needs medicine to help support his failing circulation, but it requires a special IV, a central line in his neck or groin. I have placed a few, but not in critical situations, much less in a patient thrashing about all over the bed. I tried different settings on the ventilator. Settings for pneumonia with high oxygen and more pressure. Settings for COPD with quicker but smaller breaths. All to no avail. He is not following the books I have read nor any pattern I recognize. He's gone from bad to worse and now is close to death. I breathe. All eyes are on me. The nurses, the respiratory therapists, the interns are all looking to me, the senior resident, to take charge and help this patient. But the puzzle of my patient's physiology is beyond my recognition. I don't want to be here. 
I don't know what to do. I'm failing. But more importantly, my patient is dying. Call a code, I say. The nurses look puzzled, but he's not coding. His heart hasn't stopped. He's about to. Call it. I need more help. I need more people here. Dr. Cart, ICU. Dr. Cart, ICU echoes overhead, alerting all those on call scattered throughout the hospital that there isn't a code or an arrest. They're to stop what they're doing to come to assist when that hospital-wide alarm is sent out. But when they enter the ICU, breathless from their sprint, they do not find a patient without a pulse, but instead a senior resident who is failing in his responsibility to help his patient. I feel shame, inadequate, an imposter. Worst of all, I'm a danger to my patient. There's now a larger group of residents, some more senior, others the same level of training as me. I quickly explain the situation, and after a few questions, two of them look at each other with recognition of the pattern that has eluded me. Acute right heart failure prompted by positive pressure from the ventilator. The right ventricle is struggling to pump blood to the lungs. Usually our focus is on the left ventricle pumping blood to the body. Difficult to treat when recognized, impossible if not appreciated. One resident deftly places that IV in his neck. The other goes to work on the ventilator, modifying the settings, and 30 minutes later, my patient is stable at least for the next few hours, through no help of my own. The three of us debrief a bit and talk about a game plan moving forward before I call and update the attending at home. They go back to their patients, leaving me alone with my team and my thoughts. The patients in the ICU make it through the rest of the night unscathed, unlike my psyche. I am humbled by what I need to learn and shaken by how my deficiencies almost led to a death. My patient's life now on a more stable course, I find my own career path in jeopardy. With a bit more time separating me from the event, I start to process the evening. My colleagues who came to my rescue did not judge me. They came to help a co-resident and patient in need. The shame or judgment I felt was my own and my own to bear. Today, I appreciate even more the culture and learning environment at the University of Chicago, where cooperation trumps ego and pride in an environment that encourages resident autonomy. Asking for help is not a sign of weakness. What could have led to an abandonment of a life goal instead became a building block for future learning. It has been 17 years since my first night as a senior resident in the ICU. 12 of those have been as an adult pulmonary and critical care doctor working with a group of physicians that practice with the same philosophy. That recognizing one's limits is an important part of being a doctor. There is no sin in having deficits, but there is in failing to acknowledge and learn from them. I learned more that night than the pattern of acute right heart failure. I took a big step to being a lifelong learner.
And what a great piece. And thank you, Dr. Topin. And my goodness, he was, he was recalling that incident as if it happened yesterday. And it's something we've all experienced in some way, shape, or form. It's how we learn, folks. And asking for help is not a weakness. Dr. Jeremy Topin's story, here on Our American Stories. stories and you're listening to mark cohen's classic walking in memphis and it may be one of the two best songs ever written about a trip to graceland and the best one ever written we're about to get into and dig into in our story of the song segment and it's one of our favorites here on our american stories and this is the story of graceland as told by writer paul simon And Graceland is the title song of the album Graceland, released in 1986 by Simon. The song features vocals by the Everly Brothers. The lyrics deal with a singer's thoughts during a road trip to Graceland after the failure of his marriage. The song helped Simon win the 1988 Grammy Award for Record of the Year. And now, in his own words, on the creation of this song, here's Paul Simon. The Graceland story is a very uh, interesting story in that it's a very good example of how a collaboration works, even when you're not aware of it occurring. The track is one of the early tracks because I only did five tracks in South Africa. On uh, the sessions that I did with Forere, who was the accordion player, plays on Boy in the Bubble, we did a few other tracks. One of the tracks I said, you know, I, I like only the drums on this track. I don't really want anything else. I don't want the accordion or bass. I just want the drums. And the drums were uh, something like a kind of a traveling rhythm in country music. I'm a big Sun Records fan and early 50s, mid 50s Sun Records. You'd hear that drum beat a lot. fast, Johnny Cash type of rhythm. And somewhere later in the week of recording, when I had uh, 
you know, put together a, a, a rhythm section of Ray Peary and Begidi Kumalo and Isaac Pachali as the rhythm section, I said to Ray one day, I like this drum pattern. Take a listen to it and see if it does anything for you. You know, it sounds like a kind of a country thing to me. So he started to play his version of American country, Ray. Uh, he was in the key of E, and then uh, he was playing, uh, you know, like, because he's playing electric, but he would, he would be up over here, you know, like. Uh, uh, Drums are going down. Oh, then he went. Which is a relative minor chord to that key. It's interesting that you played a minor chord because all the music that I've been recording in South Africa, with the exception of the Sutu music, it was all three chord major chords. It was never a minor chord. There were times when I would ask Black Mombazo to sing a minor chord. They couldn't sing a minor chord. They just didn't hear it. So he put in this, uh, this minor chord, and I said, that's, that's interesting. Why'd you do that? He said, I was just imitating the, the way you write. I said, we'll play this lick over it. Da, do, dee, da, da, do, da, do, da. Ba, do, dee, da, ba, do, dee, da, da, do, dee, da, da. In an overdub. And he did, and it was a really nice, really nice mix. And Begidi was playing. Dun, 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 dun. emptiness to it. I think that's part of what makes me think that it's something like Sun Records, you know, when it was just a few instruments and nothing really much except slapback echo and the song. There's also another uh, connection musically that's in there, and that is there's a pedal steel guitar in there, which is, a, of course, a, you know, like a, a country instrument. But it's also a West African instrument, and the guy who played it, uh, his name was Devola Adejapu. He played with uh, King Sonny Ade's band. You know, I wanted to uh, hear what that lick sounded like. Seemed like it would be a very good pedal steel lick. And it was a great pedal steel lick, but it was also a great Ray Peary performance. interesting is that 
Ray reaches into his memory for some kind of approximation of what he thinks of as American country. And Begidi plays straight ahead to the African groove. And so the, the two, you know, the two musics find a commonality. And the lyric expresses that. I'm going to Graceland. Don and Phil Everly came in and sang. I always heard that song as a perfect Everly Brothers song. Poor boys and pilgrims with families, and we are going to Graceland. I was down in South Africa in, I think, February, maybe early March, and I think I didn't go down to, uh, to Memphis until maybe May. Brought it home, and I was trying to write to it. I would, um, you know, sing these lines about Graceland. Graceland, because I'm going to get rid of the Graceland part, because, I mean, what's Graceland got to do with South Africa or anything like that, so... That's got to go. Just a question of, uh, you know, what I'm going to replace it with. But then I couldn't replace it with anything. I was always singing that. And finally I said, I don't know, maybe I'm supposed to go to Graceland. I've never been. Maybe I'm supposed to go on a trip and see what I'm writing about. So I did. And, uh, and then I began to describe the trip, uh, the Mississippi Delta, because I was driving up uh, from uh, Louisiana, uh, where I had cut uh, the Zydeco track on Graceland. I was driving from Highway 61. You know, I'm just writing about what the countryside looked like. The Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar. I am following the river down the highway through the cradle of the Civil War. I'm on Graceland, Graceland. And finally got there to, you know, to Graceland and just, you know, made a tour through Graceland. But what's interesting about all of this is that the part of me that had Graceland in my head, I think subconsciously was reacting to what I first heard in the drums, which was a kind of Sun Records country blues amalgam. And what Ray was doing was mixing up his oral recollections of what American country was and what kind of chord changes I played. And so the whole song really is just one sound evoking a response and that eventually became a lyric that evoked, instead of being specifically about a South African subject or even a political subject, it became a, a traveling song that had to do with the original sound, which was the drums and, and, uh, and Sun Records and Graceland. That's really the secret of world music, is people are able to listen to each other and uh, make associations and play their own music that sounds like it fits into, a, into another culture. And uh, that's, how it, that's how it works, and that's how it worked then. The story of Graceland. 
And what a story it is. And by the way, Simon is being humble, exceedingly so. These lyrics, read them one day. They'll break your heart. What he's going through, what his ex-wife was going through, his son. But I've reason to believe will be received in Graceland. Always in the end, Simon's great lyricism, his great musical talent. You've heard it all here, a remarkable story of his song. Paul Simon's very best song, the story of Graceland, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite series called Come Together, where we bring you the stories of unlikely people and communities coming together to solve problems. And today, it's a white Republican and Wall Street titan from Richmond, Virginia, named Stanley Druckenmiller, who's a billionaire, and someone who's not a billionaire. He's black, a Democrat education reformer from New York City, named Jeffrey Canada. So why are these guys hanging out together? Before we tell you, we bring you their individual life stories as they told them in a joint appearance at the University of Southern California. And so we start with Stan and his early life. And like most folks in finance, he wasn't dreaming about it as a kid. He was actually an English major in college until he realized he loved economics and then decided to go to the University of Michigan to pursue a graduate degree in econ, at least that was the plan. I lasted a semester and a half and I, I dropped out, went to work construction for six months and then uh, my first marriage, which was a practice marriage, in at 22, <laughs> in at 22, out at 23. Don't get married at 22, okay? Uh, it was my first great cutting my losses, okay? Oh, actually, she cut them, not me. Um, we, we have her here. <laughs> The marriage did help in one way, though. Her stepfather got him a job at Pittsburgh National Bank, and he was on his way in finance. But how did he get to starting his own investment firm? When I was 27, I was director of investments for Pittsburgh National Bank. I was running $6 billion, and I was doing a pretty good job because the show I ran went under, and I had no experience whatsoever, so I said, this is easy, let's put all our money in oil stocks and defense stocks. If I had been a little older, a little wiser, I would have diversified. It went up a lot, so everybody thought I was a genius. I wasn't a genius. I just didn't know any better. Um, so I go to this dinner in New York. I'm making 43000 a year, and I give a presentation on the gold, and the guy says, you don't sound like you're from a bank. Why don't you, why don't you start a firm? And I said, with what? I'm worth about four grand." And, and he says, um, well, I'll pay you $10,000 a month to talk to you. So I started Duquesne Capital, and he said, you can raise money. Well, I'm such a good salesman. After a year and a half, I'd raised $900,000. So that's what I started with, $900,000. Two years later, the guy that paid me $10,000 a month to talk to me, I woke up one morning, and he was going to jail. Um, <laughs> he had some scheme, and it cost Chase Bank $256 million. By then, I was up to a grand total of $7 million with a 1% fee, 
For those of you who went to the wrong school, I know all USC people <laughs> can do the math. I had 70,000 a year in revenues, and my overhead was 160, and I was in deep, you know what. Stan's giving himself a hard time here, but it's no joke to raise $900,000 at 28 years old. And his hedge fund grew to $12 billion under management by the time he retired in 2010. And the moderator of the event then asked Stan about the returns he generated for his investors. What is a typical annual return for a hedge fund these days? Like, what's a good hedge fund return? Right. Yeah. I'd say people are pretty happy and pretty proud. I'd say 12%. 12%. 12 a year. 12% a year. So over the course of 30 years that you ran your fund, what was your average annual return? 30.4, but who's counting? <laughs> And, and um, you know, they're up and, up and downs, particularly in hedge funds, because you make big bets. How many down years? Zero. Zero. Zero down years. How did Stan generate this crazy return? Here he is on his rather unique investment philosophy. Well, my idea of risk control is a little non-conventional. I like putting all my eggs in one basket and then watching the basket very carefully. I think, uh, I don't know what they teach at Marshall, but at most business schools they teach, I think, a lot of nonsense called risk-adjusted return and diversification. As a money manager, if, if you look at a normal portfolio, most people will make 70, 80% of money that year on two or three ideas, even though they'll have 30 or 40 things in their portfolio. My concept was to put into those two or three ideas that I had the most conviction in. I was also lucky to travel across asset classes, so I traded commodities, currencies, bonds, and equities, and it gave me the discipline. If I didn't have a good idea in equities, I was happy to have no equities, or the same thing with bonds. So when you have a quiver with a bunch of arrows in it, you can usually find something to put a lot of money into. The only other thing I'd say is too many investors look at the present. The present is always is already in the price. You have to think out of the box and sort of visualize 18 to 24 months from now what the world is going to be and what securities might trade at. You know, what a company has been earning, is it doesn't mean anything. What you have to look at is what people think what a company's earning, what people think it's going to earn, and if you can see something two years that's going to be entirely different than the conventional wisdom, that's how you make money. My first boss used to say the obvious is obviously wrong. If you invest in conventional wisdom, you're going to lose your butt. And that's not easy to do, and Stanley, let's just say that's deeply heretical, actually, what he's saying. Don't diversify and stick your eggs in just one basket or two. And that's how he did what he did. That's how he generated those returns. And we're glad to take these kinds of stories and bring them your way. Our Come Together series will continue after a few messages from our commercial sponsors. We're going to hear more from Stanley. And then we're going to hear from this amazing man, Jeffrey Canada, whose life I've been following personally for many, many years, having grown up in northern New Jersey and seen what he's done with one little school with some billionaire's money and some rich Jewish and WASP benefactors, white people helping this black Democrat say these public schools aren't working anymore. I want to start my own. 
I got this idea. And it's called the Harlem Children's Zone. And go there if you're ever in New York City. Go up to Harlem and visit what Mr. Canada's done up there. And you'll know that school choice for kids is not just a 21st century civil right. It's a basic liberty. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Stanley and Jeffrey coming together. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and we're back with our Come Together feature on investors Stan Druckenmiller and education reformer Jeffrey Canada. Stan's investment returns of over 30% annually made him a billionaire. Forbes lists his net worth today at $4.7 billion, but it would be much higher if he didn't give so much of it away already. Just take the year 2008. He made $250 million that year, and the very next year, he was listed as the most generous person in the United States, giving away almost Three times that, $700 million he gave away in a single year. By the way, you don't hear that in the news very often, folks. The generosity of the people who make the great wealth, the so-called 1%, and what they do with that money. Well, here's Stan on why he gives away so much. Well, the first reason I give is because I can. Um, So... I don't know where it came from. I was given a gift. I'm, I, I'm good with compounding money. Um, I'm a competitive person. I got an ego problem. I like winning. I like beating somebody at something. But it really doesn't give you that much satisfaction. Um, it is a great irony to me that my wife and I get honored when we go places for giving and people think you're nice people. I don't do it to be a nice person. First of all, it's a privilege and it's fun when you have this much money and there's so many things out there to be able to give it and shape things and direct things I mean it is it is really a source of great pleasure and satisfaction and uh, you know to be able to meet people like Jeff and he's in the trenches I mean what he does compared to I do it's it's not even close but to be able to fund them and maybe make a difference through their efforts and still what I do for a living because I love what I do you know, it's, it's, I do it because it's fun to tell you the truth and you can make a difference. Stan continues on the topic of generosity. There's statements out there about guys being greedy or whatever who don't give money away. And I don't really look at that. I think they're stupid. I mean, they have no idea the joy they're missing. And uh, you take a guy like Buffett who is revered around the world good for him the man never gave away a penny until he was 70 years old and then he hands it all over to gates to do the fun of it is getting in there and watching these great people like jeff canada operate and sourcing them and working with them just to write a check is not what it's about stan has mentioned supporting jeffrey canada who he's sharing the stage with in 1990 canada became the president 
of Harlem's Children's Zone, which declared 24 blocks of Harlem, New York, theirs. They would be there for every single kid in those 24 blocks, from running charter schools they, they can attend to providing services to the traditional public schools that more kids attend, to helping the parents anything and everything that could provide a better future for the families of that particular community. Harlem Children's Zone is now in 100 blocks. Here's Jeffrey as he began his portion of their conversation. People ask why I uh, ended up coming up with this strategy, and uh, Harlem was a place uh, that people used to describe all that's wrong in the black community in America. Uh, They would say, well, you know, Harlem. Uh, If you looked, our kids had the worst outcomes. More of the kids were going to jails and prisons. Less of them were um, graduating high school. Few kids were going to college. Uh, These young people lived in a community that was literally falling down. Uh, Stan and I would walk around Harlem, and every third building was abandoned. Uh, He he stuck out a little bit more than I did in Harlem. uh, I was kind of scared walking around back then. (laughs) uh, But the thing, it's really unimaginable, uh, the conditions these young people lived in. And it reminded me of the conditions I grew up in in the South Bronx, where it looked like no one gave a damn, right? You would think anyone who cared would not let kids grow up in places that you could look at and tell this was a terrible neighborhood. Uh, We thought that this was involved more than just trying to get kids an education, that the community uh, was crumbling around them and we had to fix it up, we had to create block association, tenant associations, we had to start with kids at birth and help their parents learn about all of the brain science that was coming out. How do you translate information to people who want to do the best by their kids but no one's ever told them uh, what to do? So uh, we decided that there was no area that we could leave. Uh, If we work with kids until they're four and you send them to a lousy school, guess what happens? All of that hard work goes down the drain. If you work with them through elementary school and send them to a middle school, two years later the kids look like all the other kids who are failing. Even when we sent our kids off to college, they ended up dropping out of college in record numbers. And so we created this pipeline, and the idea was to really stick with these kids through the pipeline, get them through college so they could come in and get jobs. And it was not just education, it's arts and culture and sports and all of the stuff that we think uh, that allows young people to be successful. Now, one of the things that we do is somewhat controversial uh, is that Uh, We insist that college graduation is the goal that we have for our kids. And some people say, well, don't you believe in vocational education? I do. Uh, How about kids joining fire, police, great jobs? I believe in that. But I believe part of the challenge we have in our community is that we have had very low expectations for these kids. And so we believe in college. And I always tell folk, whenever you're faced with an issue like this and you don't know what the right answer is, it's somewhat controversial, I haven't said this in front of Stan, but I tell this in front of all the rest of the country, so I might as well say it here. I tell folks, when you don't know what to do, do what rich people do. Right? I know it's controversial. I know it's controversial. I know it's controversial, but, but that's what I tell people, right? It seems to be working for them pretty good, right? So, um... Part of my, you know, I have to raise a lot of money in the zone, and Stan and I, even even though I've tried to spend up all of Stan's money, uh, we still have to raise more money than that. Uh, and uh, I, that means I have to be around a lot of 
uh, rich people because they have the money. I tried to raise money from poor people. It didn't work. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying it didn't work so well. So, uh, but you notice this interesting thing. Uh, the people who have money only have one expectation for their children. Their children are going to college. It's what college they're going to. This one's going to USC. This one's going to go to Notre Dame. Never have I seen people with money who've had three kids and say, okay, you're USC, you're Notre Dame, but you, I think, hairdresser school, right? <laughs> I've never seen it. All of their kids go to college. And I'm looking at my kids and I'm saying, why shouldn't we have the same expectation for these kids? What if you decided that every kid was going to get this message? that we value so much, that we think you have so much potential that we're going to treat you as if you're our own kids and make sure you go to college. So we started out with a few kids, now we have a bunch of kids in college and we think that that is part of the new American dream, that what we're doing in Harlem we think needs to happen all over the country in places where kids have failed. Many people know Jeffrey from his role in the movie Waiting for Superman, which is directed by Davis Guggenheim, and followed along several students as they entered a lottery to get into a charter school and prayed that they'd win it, that luck would have it. They could finally go to a good school. Here's Jeffrey on how the title of the movie came to be. Uh, I, at that time that I had said this, we never thought that that was going to be the title of the movie, uh, but I was explaining what it feels like to grow up in a place where only a superhero could save you. Uh, kids growing up where people are murdered, people are killed, where you see violence, domestic violence, and regular violence, where you're afraid to go to school because they're gangs. Uh, you think this neighborhood is so horrible that I need a superhero. And so when I found out there was no such thing as superheroes, I literally started crying. Uh, and I told that story to uh, uh, Davis Guggenheim, and uh, they ended up uh, saying, you know, that should be uh, the name of the movie thanks to the dedication of canada and his team givers like stanley Druckenmiller included many more of these kids no longer wait for superman at their harlem children's zones charter schools over 90 percent of their economically disadvantaged students graduate from high school when they started traditional public schools in harlem had a graduation rate of 30 percent and their charter schools have a college attendance rate of 83 percent when they started Harlem's traditional public schools had a college attendance rate of 13 to 14 percent. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, our Come Together series. Stan and Jeffrey, and that's Stan Druckenmiller, the hedge fund titan, and Jeffrey Canada, the education reformer. And we're talking about the Harlem Children's Zone, one of the great examples of free enterprise at work, a choice at work in education in this country. More after these messages.
is Our American Stories, and we're back with our latest Come Together feature. Investor Stanley Druckenmiller met education reformer Jeffrey Canada through his work with the Robin Hood Foundation, which uses Wall Street-style analyses to determine the most effective charities in New York City and then invest in them. In the next clip, Stan mentions Bowden College, his alma mater, as he tells the story of their first meeting. And this was before Jeffrey's Harlem Children's Zone had expanded to all 100 blocks. I remember that day like it was yesterday, because I was riding at Robin Hood. We used to have our board meetings on site with the grantees, and I was riding up with the executive director, and he said that uh, the guy who ran this place we're going to went to Bowdoin, Jeff said it resonated with me that there were three African-Americans who went to Bowdoin. I, I could give a damn that they went to Bowdoin. What, what, what struck me at the time, because we're talking 1993, is I walked up this set of stairs, there's like four sets of them, and uh, there were four black men. And Robin Hood, we had a lot of not-for-profits, but most of the not-for-profits were run by women. And a big problem in the African-American community in, in, in Harlem is dysfunctional families and there are not a lot of fathers around. And to see four African-American men doing the good fight, and I remember I went, I went back, either we didn't have Google back then or I hadn't discovered it yet. You can uh, <laughs> figure out which it might have been. But I went back and, and there was an article on you in Time magazine and specifically, he had a third-degree black belt, and a couple of kids in County Cullen had some drugs or something, and this maniac went into the apartment, and this is back when Harlem was different, <laughs> practically tore down the door and got the kids and the parents, and basically very tough love, we'll leave it at that. And, uh, you know, it's funny because they were just four guys and, and Jeff, but... I knew I had a winner. I, I knew I had to back this guy. And you fast forward five or six years ago, he walks in one day and he says, uh, he's got this idea, we're going to carve out 100 square blocks in Harlem and, and change the community. I said, well, it's great. And then he says, uh, now for the bad news, our, our budget, which is like a million or two million, it's now going to go to seven million. I said, that's okay, but in... If we do phase three, it's going to be 64 million. <laughs> and I'm going like, Jesus Christ. And this is, <laughs> this is the late 90s. And I'm already seeing that the tech thing is a problem. And I'm like trying to figure out how to make a profit off everybody else's misery. And now I figure out the misery is about to be mine. <laughs> but... It shows you my belief in this man because there's not another human being I've met, and I'm sure I won't meet one, who I wouldn't have followed. And I, and I said, let's go. But one funny thing, we, we had a board that they weren't really good on the money side. And I said, there's only, there's only one condition. You've got to fire the whole board and make me chairman, and I'll pick a new board. And uh, by the way, the $7 million didn't go to $64 million. It's $105 million now, and he's still producing great ideas, and I've had some good investments in my time, but this man right here is the best one I ever made. And here's Jeffrey Canada on the beginning of this unlikely friendship. 
We didn't know one another very well. Uh, we uh, had different political views and uh, still. I'm, I'm, trying to, him, I'm trying to avoid that whole issue, but, <laughs> but you'll probably hear some of that before the night is out. Uh, but the question, the question is, uh, for, for I think both of us, could we really make a difference? Uh, and, uh, you know, I was a little uh, concerned uh, that uh, someone who did not come from an environment like the one I grew up in, whether or not they were going to stay the course, uh, you have... Uh, no idea how aggressive the growth has been uh, in the Harlem Children's Zone, and there would have been no way uh, that I could have done it uh, without Stan. Uh, I mean, no one else would have taken a bet like that uh, on an idea, uh, never assuming anybody would care or hear about it or know anything about it. Uh, and uh, we both uh, love this country, uh, we love our city, uh, and we love those kids in Harlem. Uh, and uh, there was no reason for me to suspect uh, a guy like Stan would love kids from Harlem. You know, it doesn't, in, in my growing up, that was never something that, you know, you would sort of just assume a guy working on Wall Street would care that much for the kids. But you know what? Uh, it's not just his wallet. His home is opened up for our kids. Uh, you know, my, all of my kids know Mr. Stan, and they all want to go to Mr. Stan's house. And uh, this I idea, right? Because I, I, there are a lot of people want to go to Mr. Stan's house. As he would say, which one? Uh, the kids, I get a kick out of it because when the kids come, they always ask me, Mr. Canada, this your house? I'm like, no, this is not my house. Uh, my house does not look like this. But you know, but you know what? If you, if you want kids to really understand the promise of them, kids who, kids who have not a clue what it means, right, uh, to really make it because they've not seen that vision, uh, they've not been to places where everybody is striving to uh, make it a better world, uh, I think the exposure uh, that Stan and my other board members have given these kids helps change their lives. And indeed it does. Jeffrey and Stan have both talked about their fundraising efforts together. Here's Jeffrey on his conversations with potential donors and really all of us about seeing the bigger picture of what something really costs. People say, how much does it cost? You get these kids, you stay with them from birth to... I say it averages about $5,000 a year per child. I could cut the number in half if I counted adults, right? Because we serve a lot of adults. But I don't want to cut the number in half. I want it to be a sticker shock because you know why? I tell folk, the end result of us not doing our work, if you look at the cost of incarceration in our zone, if you come here, I have the map that shows you all of the kids who end up going to jail. Uh, in New York State, it's $60,000 a year. You know what it is in the city of New York? It's $147,000 a year to incarcerate someone. So someone is arguing with me about the $5,000. You know what I have to do for $5,000? I have to get those kids on grade level. I have to keep them on grade level. I have to get them graduate high school. I have to get them into college. They have to be healthy. They have to be, uh, uh, eat well. They have to uh, exercise. You know what you get for the $147,000? Do you get people who can have jobs? No. You get people who take care of their families? No. You get people who come out better citizens and they go, you get nothing and everybody is totally happy paying that price. There's no one yelling, why are we paying all of that money to lock someone up? So here we've created in our country, 
uh, a system that is totally scalable on one end. I shouldn't have to tell you that in California. I think you all know what's happening with the prison population here. And people are arguing about the pennies that we're spending on these kids trying to save their lives. My goodness, you can't hear a better articulation of public policy and common sense from Jeffrey Canada. And that sticker shock, my goodness, I didn't realize that. 147000 per year to incarcerate someone in New York City. And it's Rikers Island, if you've ever seen the place. Oh, my goodness. What a waste. What a waste. And in New York State itself, sixty k per year. When we come back, you're going to hear more from these two remarkable men, these two unlikely friends. This is a movie, folks. I mean, it's a movie. There are so many stories that we come across here on Our American Stories that are just so beautiful. You don't hear them anywhere else, but you hear them here. And when we come back, the last chapter in this remarkable friendship, our Come, to, our come Together series continues here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of our Come Together feature on the unlikely duo of Stanley Druckenmiller and Jeffrey Canada. And in this last segment, we're going to dive into Stan's other passion that you might not expect. And near near the end of this, you'll hear from Jeffrey Canada, who's joined his friend in this cause, too. The cause? The reform of the federal government's big entitlement programs, Social Security and Medicare. Here's Stan on the origins of this problem that he's trying to solve. When World War II ended, a lot of people came back to the United States, and I guess abstinence, you know what that does. Um, (laughs) There there was a whole lot of something going on that was making babies for a while. And and if you look at the next 20 years, the birth rate basically averaged about 3.0 children per woman and, and peaked in 1957 at 3.7, and that has dropped to two today. To put that in perspective, we have 100 100 million more people in America today than we had in 1957, but they they made more babies in 1957 than we'll make in 2013. The consequence of this is pretty dire from an economic sense. Because 1947, you add 65 years, is 2012, For the next 22 years, 11,000 seniors are going to be added to those entitlement payrolls every day. Every day. In 2030, I know we're in California, but how many of you have been to Florida? Okay, in 2030, the average population in the United States 
is going to be older than the average population in Florida now. Kind of an ugly sight if you've been to Florida. <laughs> you, know, you know, you see the strollers today? You're going to see walkers in 2030. They're going to be everywhere. And this is a problem because of how these entitlement programs are funded. Every worker pays a 12.6% payroll tax. It's supposed to be locked away and dedicated to funding our own Social Security and Medicare benefits when we retire. But in reality, it's going to pay for current retirees all that money. This charade could potentially work if the inputs and outputs were balanced, but they're not. There used to be 41 workers for every one beneficiary back in 1945, but today it's 2.9 workers per beneficiary, and it's not enough. And it's projected to get a lot worse, going down to one worker per beneficiary. Another factor is that Americans are living much longer, which is a good thing, but it also means that seniors have paid less into the programs than what's needed to provide for their longer retirements. The average life expectancy has gone from less than 62 years old when Social Security was founded to almost 79 years old today, 17 years longer, but without any substantive changes to the programs to account for this. And this whole unsustainable structure has created a massive debt. Here's Stan. You have all these scaremongers running around talking about $17 trillion in debt. If you did the accounting that they do for any company in America, except for maybe Enron and Fannie and Freddie, a few, a few years ago, the debt today is not $17 trillion, it's $205 trillion. All I've done here is take that money that's off balance sheet, those payments that are promised to, to me, you, and Jeff when, when we come of age, and put it on the balance sheet, and therein lies the problem. And guess who's going to pay for that? The young people. So this money that my generation has been getting this transfer that's been going on for 30 or 40 years. We are actually, because we've had this great lobbying arm called the AARP, we are actually going to be ahead of the game. We're going to get $327,000 more in benefits than we put in, but the unborn, my great-great-my great-grandchildren, I'm not too worried about them, by the way. <laughs> talking about mine. I'm um, worried about mine. His are going to be okay. <laughs> They're going to be net payers of 420000 So when you hear President Obama say, we got to do something fair and balanced, and we don't want to do this on the back of seniors, how can they look you in this straight face when there's a $700,000 inequity between today's seniors versus future seniors? And in the meantime, the Republicans on their side, they're talking about all these great cuts they're doing, they're not touching entitlements, and this is where the money is. As I said earlier, they're cutting NIH grants, they're cutting Head Start, they're cutting food stamps. The only thing that's not being touched is the only place there's any real money, which is entitlements. And it's so true. Stan continues on how this directly relates to him. Now, let's just take myself, for example. In five years, I'm going to start getting $3,500 a month in Social Security. Okay? Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And the $3,500 a month is going to come out of programs that be going to education, to his kids. Ridiculous. And if you think the fact that that's probably more money than I put in, and then give you, let me give you another statistic. If you are wealthy in this country, your life expectancy is five more years than if you're poor or middle class. 
So I'm going to also collect five more years more than, than the rest of I society. I want my money. I want the Qatari. But, but <laughs> I've asked these guys in the Washington, why don't you at least means test Social Security and Medicaid? Oh, once you start down that path, that's like going from marijuana to heroin. You, you know... <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's the same argument. If you smoke a joint, you're going to become a heroin addict. You know, if you means test Stan Druckenmiller's Social Security, the whole thing's going to break down and we're going to rip old people off. And now let's hear from Jeffrey Canada, the head of Harlem Children's Zone, on why an education reformer like himself is involved in a seemingly completely different public policy fight. I think people will... Uh, wonder why a guy who spends all of his time trying to help poor children in Harlem uh, wants to run around the country and talk about this issue of uh, generational theft. And and for me, it's pretty straightforward. Um, My kids, who have literally grown up under some of the toughest circumstances that kids face in this country, uh, have bought into the American dream. I mean, we've said that you're joining a system that is fair, right? Uh, you're going to work, you're going to pay taxes, you're going you're gonna to do it all the right way, you're, you're going to work hard, and in the end, uh, you're going to be able to uh, receive from this country what we consider the American dream. And when I saw uh, the uh, figures that Stan presented about what's going to happen, I said that uh, essentially uh, we've told our kids a lie. Uh, We've just told them a lot. We told them this thing was going to be fair, it was going to be equitable, and yet my generation is literally picking their pockets. And I just, these kids have nothing. They have nothing. Their families have no money. They have no support in their homes. And for us to be taking from them to me, I think is unconscionable. And finally, here's Dan Druckenmiller with his closing message to the USC students in the audience and across America. I implore you, There's 70 million of you. You have the power. You're getting your butt kicked by the AARP. You're just sitting by idly while they take advantage of you. I've given up on Washington. I make a lot of money. You'd think I have political access. I can't move Washington on this because their job is to get reelected, and they know old people vote and you don't. So it has to be up to you. That's why I'm going around the country trying to get you guys stirred up so you'll act, and I implore you to act. I really appreciate your coming out tonight, and thank you. And by the way, so much of that money that goes to entitlements, well, that, all that money that would go to other programs, from our military straight through to our education uh, establishment, and that is all the different choices we could have, that money is just going to dry up. It's all going to transfers to old people, young to old. One of the great thefts. Uh, that we're going to be digging into over over time. And certainly we're going to try and get Stan on this show to drill down. He's given some of the best talks on this subject that I've ever seen. I think this is where he's going to park it for the rest of his life. And again, there's no interest for him. His kids are fine. Again, our 1% are guys like this. These are the only guys that can get it done either. Stan can ultimately bankroll some campaigns. And who's he doing it for? He's just doing it for the next generation because somebody's got to do it. Another great story here on Our American Stories, our Come Together series. My goodness, we've had some great ones. We had one with a head of Coke Industries, the general counsel there, and a woman who derided the 1%. And they met each other on a stage. She had lost uh, some limbs to a, to a terrible, terrible shooting 
she was at a, in the middle of a robbery and ended up losing, losing limbs. She was at an award ceremony. She got her award, and then Mark Holdren got his from Coke Industries. They started to talk, and it turns out she had some problems collecting insurance on her limbs. The insurance company was just giving her the runaround. And the next thing you know, this guy from Coke Industries is helping her, and he's fighting the fight with the insurance companies, and they wouldn't budge. And one day, he and his wife show up at this lady's house with two prosthetic limbs that cost a couple of hundred thousand dollars. And he just did it because, well, he could. And it was the right thing to do. And they are fast friends. And these things happen every day in this great country. We can agree to disagree about politics. But my goodness, the degree to which we do things together is remarkable here in this great country. We love the Coming Together series. We also uh, featured Foster Freeze and what he did right after some tornadoes in Wisconsin. And he just, he just basically went back to his old hometown and just started writing checks to people. $10,000 here, $1,000 a year. And why? Because he could and because it was the right thing to do. And there he was with people who lived very differently than him. But in the end, well, that's what we do here in America. We work together. We come together. This is our American story, Stanley Druckenmiller's story, Jeffrey Canada's story, here on Our American Stories.